welcome to Farm to Tabor. If you've been listening to a lot of our episodes this season, you know that this season deals with a lot of powers stuff. Agriculture has this image of being kind of historical and wholesome and outside the realm of ugly modern things, while in reality it's just the scene of centuries of brutal power plays. That wholesome image is one of the power plays. So this season's been a lot of checking out how power works in agriculture, both in the traditional political and financial sense, but also in other ways like cultural soft power. Things like, who do we tend to empathize with? Or, what do we think good is? What do we think sustainability looks like? What do we aspire to? Who do we want to be? These things have driven how agriculture in North America has unfolded for hundreds of years, and there are new wrinkles coming out all the time. So this interview is going to be a little bit different. Today I'm sitting down with Sadia Muzaffar, a tech industry analyst, trainer, and institution builder based in Toronto. Uh, so my name is Sadia Muzaffar, and I am the founder of Tech Girls Canada. We are the hub for Canadian women in science, technology, engineering, and math. And I'm also the co-founder of Tech Reset Canada, where we are trying to reinsert uh, the conversation about public good into policy and innovation. Sadia and I have been talking a lot about how tech bills itself as new and unlike anything else that's ever happened before. But its behavior actually parallels a lot of how settler agriculture was rolled out in North America. And since tech is new, but ag's been around for a while, getting a good feel for agriculture as an industry and how it's behaved and keeps behaving can help us do some pattern recognition with where tech might be going. And a fair warning. Comparative analysis of tech and agriculture is kind of a new area, so we don't have a ton of answers yet. This is going to be a very stream of consciousness thing. We're just doing a lot of comparing notes and talking about the weird stuff we've seen go down. Sadia is going to start it off with talking about a Google proposal to make Toronto a smart city and how city officials are letting Google write their own check about how they'll use citizens' data in a lot of the same ways that a lot of land grants and other goodies were given away to farmers and other landowners. In, I think in their mind, it's like career suicide. So they're all pretending like they don't, they understand it. And Google is exploiting that so well, um, um, which is what they're doing like everywhere. It's not particular to Toronto. They are heavily um, staffed to do this kind of dance, right? Like right. where it's like, ooh, look, shiny. <laughs> yeah, it's the emperor has no clothes. And... Totally, totally, totally. But it's done in, in a very masterful way, but it's not it's not rocket science. If somebody like me can understand by just paying attention and being a little skeptical, right. um, I think that people in, you know, office can. But the thing is, I think... They are unfortunately focused on, um, they're being played, basically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and they don't want to admit that they're being played because that means they're stupid, yeah. which is not the case at all. You can actually say, hey, I had no idea this is how tech companies pitch their stuff because uh, we've seen this in pitch decks everywhere. Of course, everyone is transforming the world forever and ever. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, it's very familiar. It's easy for somebody like me to be skeptical of it because I've literally heard it a hundred thousand times. So everyone mm-hmm. from like those juicer or whatever people, they also yeah. want to change the world, you know, like, mm-hmm. but it's, it's bad. Um, so I am, 
uh, on a self-imposed like social media break where mm-hmm. a lot of things are exploding. I'm like, nope, nope, because I need a little <laughs> bit of distance to figure out what is the most impactful thing to do going forward, given that this is not my job. Because right. um, I think with them, because they're, they're literally staffed, right? Like they have a hundred plus people um, who whose job it is nine to five and possibly nine to nine mm-hmm. to, to get push this through. Right. And we are constantly fighting fires. Like there is so much chaos that's created by them yeah. um, that I think we can end up just doing this and I, I don't want this to be the thing that I did. In, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just, there's no future building here. Yeah. This is, so I'm trying to be more intentional and trying to distance myself from it in a way where I can figure out, um, you know, the, the critical things while, you know, other people can also do a, a whole bunch of, like, fighting the fires. Oh, right. Basically. Yeah, that that sounds a lot like what we're dealing with with the natural gas, or excuse me, the frag gas pipeline they're trying to put through here is, you know, we have kind of a ragtag team of unpaid volunteers going, this is what the economics look like. The economics are not good for us. This is just built so frag gas investors who made bad bets because they thought frack wells behave like oil wells and they don't. Well, now they need a place to dump cheap natural gas or, excuse me, expensive natural gas as the drilling becomes more expensive because the wells behave differently. Mm-hmm. So we need to put it somewhere. Right. Let's, let's give it to these idiots in North Carolina. <laughs> they don't know any better. And um, so as a business person, I'm looking at the penciling out of how this thing is going to go. And we're, we're like, this is not good. It's not even an environmental issue. I mean, it is, but it's an economic issue. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there's like five people in the state really kind of fighting this um, and, you know, and, and tons of volunteers. But the leadership and the volunteer base is um, it's so spread thin and we're very much in a reacting mode as opposed to a proactive mode. Like Dang. what we need to be doing is having a plan for full scale solar and wind deployment with grid scale batteries. 10 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, you can't just say, don't do this. You need a substitute. And we don't have the infrastructure to go, here's what we should be doing instead. And so we're just fighting this reactive, like trying to put fires out instead of actually leading forward battle. And it sucks. So, so similar. And you can understand the frustration of like being somebody who sees it probably more end to end than a lot of people who are closer to it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, the amount of energy that's going in just fighting back actually takes you away from, you know, starting the thing yeah. about, you know, what are our alternatives? And that's the problem right now. I think yeah. the biggest card that Google has right now is the way they've structured the contract that no one's seen is if it proceeds to X point, the deal's in the bag, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. they keep saying, but we haven't presented a proposal to you without acknowledging, oh. of course, yes. um, that the, the way that the contract is structured is if the proposal is put forward and the board is like, yes, because it's an 800-page document, like who the fuck on a volunteer board is going to read <laughs> document? You know, like they're, yeah. they're literally drowning them in paperwork, which mm-hmm. is like the oldest trick in the book. Right. Um, and they're saying, you haven't seen anything, so your critiques are invalid. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are buying that, especially mm-hmm. like, White men are buying that, and it's so mm-hmm. annoying. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> they don't know any better. They don't know how to trust people. <laughs> uh, anywho, um, 
that sucks that you guys are but you know what there are so many people who are writing to me from like other cities where this is also happening but it's mm-hmm. not google it's like facebook mm-hmm. and they're trying to implement like um not rfid but like technology like that where they mm-hmm. have like beacons and like tracing and, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. and it's very similar it's so similar in fact that we could probably at this point if we had the time and the resources write a playbook of mm-hmm. how these companies are quote-unquote courting mm-hmm. cities that are you know in austerity mode where they shouldn't have been but they are showing up with like gobs of money and promises and like, it's just, but also I think a lot of good work is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so slow, so much more <laughs> yeah. than the speed at which they're moving, Yeah, which is the frustrating part. Yeah, And they know it. That's the thing. I'm like, Oh my God, we're being played. Do you see this? People are like, no, but look, it's Google. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, they did such a good job of making San Francisco livable. Right? And I keep pointing to them. Like, look, <laughs> look, it's, you don't even have to imagine. They've already done it. It's bad. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh what? This is Toronto. And it's only 12 acres. I'm like, that is a lie. Nothing yeah. will scale in 12 acres. You know they're coming for the city. How can you be so dumb? Fascinating. But here we are. Yeah. You know. It's interesting how you mentioned like a big part of their strategy is to create this sense of inevitability. Like it's happening. It's just, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. You know? <laughs> that's the biggest and, thing. I think, and I think that's, that's a way to exhaust people too, yes, right? Because they're doing that here. Yep. And, and it's been, it's been their uh, MO in dealing with like smaller things too. When we were raising awareness around data surveillance, they were like, it's already happening. Your phone's already trying. We're like, okay, even if that was true, that doesn't mean that it needs to continue happening. But I think that it does have an effect on people where they're like, oh, well, what's another thing if there's like six things, which is weird to me. Mm-hmm. Or, but I, I think it's, it's it literally so many blows that it exhausts them and people just sit down. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Yup. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of that. I mean, great news. We've had a couple of big setbacks for our, there's two pipelines they're trying to build here and they're both on complete construction shutdown right now because they're, right. they're getting permits from government agencies that courts were like, this agency doesn't even have the authority to permit you for this. What the fuck are you all doing? <laughs> so that's been great. The lobbying here, mm-hmm. uh, like for like the federal government, mm-hmm. is so ramped up. Like they met with in um, I think five weeks they had nineteen meetings mm-hmm. um, by their lobbyists with government officials. So they are definitely looking to override, despite their oh community. Um, mm-hmm narrative they're looking to override it for sure mm-hmm. and these these i don't even know what to call them they're they're morons because they're falling for this because google is courting them oh my god i was like your parents did not raise you with pride you know <laughs> my parents are like don't do anything stupid you gotta be you know you gotta stand up for yourself because you gotta answer for what you've done and like i'm i'm too proud to be stupid I'm like, I will do my work. I will eat my words and I will admit a mistake because I'm too proud to be this person who was stupid because they couldn't admit their mistake. But no, our parents were clearly different people. Yeah. And so we've been talking a little bit about the parallels between like bad tech behavior and bad landlord behavior. 
And mm-hmm. this is something that I am obsessed with because I work in mainstream agriculture. Um, and I work in tech as tech is kind of trying to enter food. And it's the same goddamn shit. It's white men gone unchecked. <laughs> it's all the same. It's fascinating. And so I feel like there's so many lessons that you can take from uh, a lot of colonial behavior that landlords have been doing forever, like back in Europe. And as they came over here and started just gobbling up stuff and what the tech mm-hmm. industry is doing now, it's the same exact playbook. Um so I think there's a lot to learn, and I think that's kind of where we're we're hoping to dig up some some good talking there. Yeah, and I think the thing that I'm obsessed with is how we don't, and I'm learning about it still. It's not like I'm any kind of expert or I have like conclusions or whatever. But I I feel like the conversation around power is completely missing, as though we can have you know economic analyses without checking in power and, and the whole who's doing what. And it has been done before. I think is really, really critical because one of the um, tools in in the war chest of what is happening in tech and in ag um, is that it's being pitched as this has never happened before. <laughs> yeah, we have been here. We actually have lessons, but there is. Um, you know, smoke and mirrors about this has never happened before. Therefore, we don't know mm-hmm. what to do and we don't have lessons to draw on, whereas we do. And I think the clarity of trying to figure out how this dynamic um, in ag right now and what's happening in technology is very, very similar. Um, we'll do good things for people who are trying to figure out not just, you know, fighting off symptom fires, which is really important to hold it back, but also trying to figure out what actually motivates it. And I think that is a fascinating and really critical thing that I don't know if many of us are, you know, paying attention to as much as we should be, because that's that's the core, right? That, yeah. That's why we're here. Yeah. And there's... I mean, it's it's interesting because when it's convenient, they will say, this has never happened before. This is new. We can't possibly know what will come out of it. We just have to let it play out. But also when it's convenient, they will say things like, hey, we've been having disruptive technological innovations in the West since X year. It's usually 1,000 or 1,500. And it's been yes. amazing. And we should keep that going. But we're never going to talk about learning lessons from what has happened as a result of that disruption. <laughs> You know. which, which is totally convenient and is also part of the chaos that comes out of this, right? Mm-hmm. But so for people, even like myself, there's a lot of sifting through debris because it's flip-flopping. It's like, mm-hmm. you haven't picked a lane. You're driving in the middle of two lanes. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. and, but that's confusing for people. And I think that confusion works to the benefit of institutionalized um oppression overall, um, particularly for the working class, because they are so hard up just trying to survive Mm -hmm. in these systems that it's hard to even distance um, yourself enough to say, wow, I see a pattern, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's by design. Yeah. Well, I think like a fantastic precedent for disruption and technological innovation and how that can change a society on a huge scale. Slavery is a perfect example. Um, and people say, oh, you can't say that, you know, but it was, um, it was a result of technological changes. We had sugar mills, you know, people had previously used honey as their big sweetener and switching to sugar was a big technological change. There were sugar mills, uh, plantations were not just farms. They had a lot of industrial apparatus on them. Um, 
There were huge changes in labor relations as a result of these technological changes. Um, also technological changes like uh, social innovation. So we invented insurance because all of a sudden there's this transoceanic trade and insurance was built to insure slave ships. Like that's where that institution comes from. That's where we developed it. So you have big financial innovations coming as a result. Um, <laughs> uh, securitized commodities, like people were used as securitized commodities, you know, like now you can get a mortgage on a house and then you can bundle the mortgages and use them to back your economy. They were doing that with people. They were building mortgages off the value of human lives. Like here's, here's my 20 people that I own. Let me get a mortgage on them and use that to build my business. And that was the foundation of not just the U S but the entire Atlantic economy. And so, you know, that was an incredibly, disruptive technological innovation that had huge labor consequences that we're still dealing with today, 500 years later. So when we say we have no precedent for technological change and disruption, uh, that's just the biggest crock of shit. <laughs> and, so. and I think that it's really interesting to see that the model has changed very little in being translated from, you know, its earlier renditions to this one. But it also probably explains another thing that you and I obsess with, with is um, the, what we can call techno-feudalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like what that mindset that comes with it, which is different and separate Mm -hmm. At least in how you and I have been trying to parse it from the economics of the thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> one of the things that happens when you run a slave economy is uh, it affects how your society is built, right? And just quick, by the way, a lot of the economics of this, I'm drawing from Caitlin Rosenthal's Accounting for Slavery, just in terms of how uh, that economy affected how our business cultures developed. Like our, our modern business culture today was developed during the slavery you know, era. It was developed in that economy. That's actually, we... I think we want to believe that it came from textile mills and stuff, but you're like, yeah, where do the textile mills come from, right? Um, the accountants and the managers running the textile mills learned what they knew from slave plantations. So <laughs> when we pretend the Industrial Revolution happened in factories, we are fooling ourselves. Um, so that's all drawing from Caitlin Rosenthal. But a big part of what happens when you run your society on that basis, um, there's a big difference between a society that has slavery in it versus one that is based on slavery. So if you have one where their enslavement is allowed, but it's not a huge part of the economy, if slavery goes away, you know, you have like a few ladies have to draw their own bathwater. You know, that's that's it as far as the consequences. And we've had a lot of societies that had that. So <laughs> it's funny because when you have white supremacists going, well, slavery happened everywhere. This is the distinction they're deliberately refusing to make. Is right. there societies that have it in them versus ones that are built on it? So ancient Greece and Rome were actually really interesting in that they were built on slavery. If you look at why Sparta was so militarized, it's because everything in Sparta was done by slaves. So it's, it's funny because in our minds, culturally, Sparta has this reputation for being like very austere, uh, very serious, not into luxury but they were like that because all the slaves were doing the work and they had all this time to train for military, you know, practices, right? right? So Athens, Sparta, same thing, slave-based economies. If you took the slaves away, Sophocles and all them would have starved. They had no idea how to grow their own food. It was built on giant estates that owned a lot of people. And as the trade networks associated with the, the Western Roman Empire collapsed, medieval Europe went into a serf-based system where serfs, obviously, they don't have a lot of rights. It's not 
I'm not saying we should go back to serfdom because it was great. That's not how it worked. But it was very different from being a slave where you can be bought and sold. When you're a serf, you're bound to the land. There are certain rights that you have. There are certain things that your estate owner can't do. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could, but then they'd be, you know, in hot water um, with neighbors and whatnot. So, So it's a very different economical basis. And you didn't have long-distance trading and markets that tend to lead towards um, market-based agriculture and really lends towards slavery. And then as we go through the Enlightenment and colonialism, that's when all these gentlemen who own serfs and estates are looking through old Roman records and Greek records going, hey, this looks pretty good. <laughs> like you have slave owners writing letters to people about why slavery is awesome because this is how the Greeks and the Romans did it. And they were awesome. And that's how we're going to be awesome. So it's a direct draw from this ideology back in the day. And, you know, that's a space of 1,500 or more years, you know, when they're kind of like trying to recreate this, this slave society that used to exist. Um, and then you take it forward into now. So during that uh, colonialism and Industrial Revolution era, a lot of that is informed by slavery. It's built on a social system that's based in slavery. It's not the surf model. And again, so in a, in a slave-based system, if you take the enslaved labor out, the system collapses. And it's based on a very different set of behaviors. You have a lot of scorn given towards manual labor because um, or just productive work of any kind is viewed as, as a negative. Actually, I had a podcast. Yeah, had a podcast about this with a Patrick Weimar. He's a historian talking about slave societies. So they have very different attitude towards work than non-slave-based societies. And, and that's on purpose, right? The the distinction to to create these classes mm-hmm. is very much by design. Yeah, and there, there's a certain attitude towards not just the work, but also the people who do it. Because <laughs> there's a lot of like, um, as humans, we want to have compassion. But when you have a social system that puts a bunch of people at the bottom with the tasks, you have to deal with that tension. Like you want to feel bad for them, like deep down, if you're not trained Mm -hmm. not to. Um, So you have to come up with some mental defenses about why it's okay for them to be treated this way. So these societies are really kind of built on a lot of hostility. (laughs) And when you take the slavery out and say, replace it with robots, that hostility remains, which is interesting. Like that culture doesn't just go away. So, Um, You have a culture that's really built on um, power dynamics. Like you have a culture that really understands power dynamics at a visceral level, even if they don't intellectually go, oh, I can do this because I have power. Um, You have a lot of weird power kink in that society. I don't know how else to explain it. There's serious yeah, power kink. So true, though. I, I think that the distinction that it's visceral and not always intellectual is really, really important because mm-hmm. it it brings the whole, you know, I'm a good person thing into it, which is why people stop engaging, get defensive, uh-huh. dig in their heels. Um, and I was reading something um, from uh, a writer called um, Omer Huck, and I'm just going to read it to you because it's really, really interesting. So if we fast forward what you're talking about to today, he's talking about techno-feudalism, and it's a great piece um, that I can uh, send you the link and you can share it with uh, the listeners. But um, he says, um, what 
The question is, what is techno-feudalism maximizing? Mm -hmm. Uh, Capitalism, even in the neoliberal variety, maximized profits and suggested like a religion, they'd rain down on the pious masses, which they didn't. Techno-feudalism actually goes further than that. It maximizes power differentials. Mm -hmm. So techno-feudalists aren't interested in profit per se, but in warping power structures. This Mm. is the ideological hard end of technology. So Uber and Amazon and so on. There are companies not so much with financial goals, but something more like crusades and missions with destinies to convert societies, which is why we're beginning to see the resurgence of all kinds of archaic institutional forms Mm -hmm. like company towns and debtors prisons and Mm -hmm. strange ideological academies and tribes and clans, which is a thing that you and I have talked about a lot (laughs) and how it's manifesting. So this is fascinating because I think a lot of the analysis of, you know, who gets to be part of, Um, a tech economy, and I'm making air quotes, um, is a huge power question, Mm -hmm. um, which ties into the visceral disdain that you're referring to, because that has to be in place in order to maintain that differential, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, like, the U.S. is a slave society that had its slaves taken away from it and never got over the power kink. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Like... eh. You know, and we dread it. We are, bleh, we're always doing our best to kind of recreate those power differentials. You know, like after slavery was gone, Jim Crow. And, you know, um, right now, like the U.S. has always had a rotating class of agricultural workers who are not citizens on the same level as everyone else. Right now, it's literally not citizens because we've made so much progress with civil rights in the United States that now we have to go to actual non-citizens. Um so that, that's really interesting to me is, is that agriculture really kind of had its slave class taken away from it and never got over it. And we're still doing our best to recreate it 150 years later. And a lot of our business culture grew out of agriculture. Like, I, I think we treat agriculture like it's this separate world apart from business. And you're like, no, it's what business came from. So... <laughs> And to a, to a big extent, you know, it's obviously still enmeshed in capitalism. It's a big driver of capitalism. So it really irks me when people treat agriculture like it's this world apart. And it's not. It's something that we need to pay close attention to because it's one of the biggest provinces of privilege that we still have in the U.S. We have this hereditary land ownership. We had laws that kept that a white thing only in so many parts of the country. Um, and so it's it's one of the biggest playgrounds of privilege. And if we want to learn how power works, not just economic power, but power, period. We need to look at agriculture and how things have gone. Um, One of my biggest hobby horses is that money is not an object for people. Like, it's not their goal. Money is just one route to power, and power is the object. And money is one of the most challenging ways to get to power. It takes a lot more discipline than other routes, like white supremacy, like vigilante violence, you know, a whole bunch of tactics that can be used to gain power. Money is just one of them. And so if we're telling ourselves that money is the object, we're not going to understand what's going on. And that's very convenient. And I think that that narrative has constantly been propped up by people who actually do understand that it's power, right? Mm -hmm. So generationally, yes, you can transfer wealth via money, but I think the kind of power that you and I are talking about is, is almost like money and a skill set and there is it it's the kind that doesn't stay stagnant i think mm-hmm. it actually 
has to get worse and worse and worse in many ways in order mm-hmm. to stay relevant because yes. what it's trying to separate keeps um, getting muddied. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting thing because in, in my world, so all, all of the history that you're sharing is fascinating for me because it's it's new for me. I have a hunch that this has happened before, but I don't know the actual details. Mm-hmm. But right now, um, if you if we think about how entire classes of workers are excluded and made invisible in tech, so Uber drivers um, and you know restaurant delivery people and Amazon warehouse people are not typically counted as tech workers. Where if these people didn't do the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. it would entirely fall apart. Like yeah. not not not. Or no amount of software or coding or programming will, you know, make any of this a reality. Right. And I'm sure that you see parallels of that in ag. Yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness. Um, so, <laughs> so I've worked in agriculture for over 20 years. I actually started out as a farm worker. So I have a really weird lens into agriculture because I am an Anglo-American who did not grow up on a farm, which is bizarre. Um, in, in the U S if you work in agriculture, if you're white, you probably grew up on a farm. That's why people, that's why those people are in agriculture because white people don't want to work on other people's farms. They want to work on their own farm. So (laughs) there just aren't that many of us. Um, and the people who do work on other farms are typically from one of those underclass demographics. That's why they're working in agriculture. There's a very strong divide. So for me, working in agriculture, and I'm, I'm trying to back out and kind of shift into journalism about agriculture because the power dynamic was like literally making me insane. <laughs> there was, um, you know, you go to a farm and the farm owners, and it, it's interesting because we kind of have this mentality where there's like small family farms and then there's corporate farms and they're totally different. They're the same people. <laughs> there's some really fascinating mental gymnastics there where we have to give white people the benefit of a doubt, but we still have to be mad about what they're doing. So we psychologically split them into two different classes of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's That's a spectrum. A yeah. And there's a spectrum of size and a spectrum of market orientation, but it does not work the way people think it does. I'm still trying to figure out how to verbalize it, but the short version is they're the same people by and large. Um, so I go to a farm and you spend some of your time working with the the workers on the farm, you know, like checking out how they, how they harvest, but for the most part, making sure that their boss has given them the appropriate bathrooms, has them fully stocked, has given the right tools and equipment. Mm-hmm. So you have to talk to the farm workers. I speak Spanish. You're like, Hey, how's it going? You know, tell me about the bathrooms. <laughs> you know, if it's having a bad day, if it's gross in there, you're like, listen, are they always like that? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, and then you spend a lot of the rest of the, the visit talking to the farmer And I've been really blessed to spend a lot of time with really good farmers. There's good ones out there. It's kind of like that 80-20 rule, you know, depends on the region. But there's there's a good sprinkling of really solid people out there working, and they're awesome. And I've learned so much from them, and they're fantastic. And then there's everyone else. (laughs) I appreciate the the whisper level for that admission. (laughs) And there's everyone else. And... um. It's interesting because if you're white, white landowners kind of expect you to be on their side. Like that's just assumed, you know, and so they'll say stuff to me about their workers that would just make your hair curl. And you kind of have to be like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) and what I found is that the farms that are 
you know, that are better at engaging with their workers and actually consider them to be people, you know, all all other things being equal are more financially successful. So I kind of consider it part of my job to at least nudge people towards being a little bit more woke. And there's often only so much you can do, but it's like, okay, let's take where you're at and like, and push you a little bit. Um, Because it's just good for you operationally and financially to have some situational awareness about your people. And the people who are just have the worst attitude about their workers have the shittiest farms. Um, I don't know how much of that is cause or effect, but you know, you're there and you're kind of having to be polite about it and you're seeing what the workers are up against. And, you know, for non-work related stuff, I'm running around rural North Carolina because we're having election issues. So we're out collecting statements. And so you're actually knocking the doors, you know, in farm worker neighborhoods and they're miserable and they're depressing and they're flooded all the time. And you know, you have to be nice with the farmers, you know, when you're there talking to the farmers and then you see what they're putting their workers through and the farmers have no idea or they say they have no idea. It's, it's a really fascinating split psychology where they're just kind of, um, they just really believe that they're the best people ever. And it's so sad what's happening to my workers. Well, are you going to pay them more? Oh no, that no. And it's just, uh, the respectability politics go, that go into it. We're just driving me crazy because if I want a farm, I'm expected to be allied with the white owning class. That's what they see. That's what they expect. But I know that if I'm a person on a farm in real life, I didn't grow up on one. I've been a farm worker. If there's anybody I actually am, it's the workers. I understand that. Yeah, that was a long ramble. But it's being up close and personal with that power dynamic was just really, really harmful. It's not good. It was making me crazy. And the people who are trapped in it, you know, because of their ethnicity, you know, like they're having it way worse than I am. So... Do you find that when you raise things related to farm workers with farmers, first of all, what's the distinction just for anybody who's listening who may not know how the the narratives play out in the general consciousness? Well, okay. So if you work on someone else's farm and you don't own it and you don't own any farm, <laughs> you're a farm worker. So here's where people get lost is a lot of farmers do work on their own farms. And so they think they're a farm worker and you're like, no, you don't get paid an hourly wage. You're a business owner. <laughs> right. They don't, they don't know the difference. And I wonder to some extent to which amount it's willful and how much it's just like real straight up ignorance in agriculture. You never really know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Even in tech, honestly. Like there's a level where you're like, I am not sure if you are willfully not engaging with this because somewhere deep inside, you know, where this is going to lead. And that's going to mean transformational change for how you operate in this world, or you literally don't get it. Like it's hard to discern sometimes. Right. That does a number on your empathy because mm-hmm. you're like, I'm not sure how much energy this deserves, but go on. So that's, so farmers who own farms, but work mm-hmm. wouldn't be considered workers because they're business owners. Right? Yeah. So it's it's your business. Yeah, yeah. You're not an employee. It's your business. So like you can work on a farm and not be a farm worker, like if it's yours. And I think that's where a lot of folks kind of get lost on what farming means. Um, How to explain this? Uh, (laughs) So the American dream, right, is to have your own place. And a lot of that was really kind of built on, like, go out and have your own farm. Go west, young man, all that stuff. Right. And that's really been the American dream, is to have your own place. It's not to work on somebody else's farm for peanuts. (laughs) So that's, and, and because 
settlement was really a colonialist endeavor. They weren't telling young black boys, you know, go west, young man. They weren't. (laughs) That's not what this was about, right? Um, There was actually a fantastic incident um, known as Japanese-American incarceration during World War II, where white farmers brought in a bunch of Japanese immigrants to be farm labor, right? And they were really good at it because there's a long tradition of very intense horticulture in Japan. Because they're awesome at it. They're so good at it that within a generation or two, they're saving up and they're buying their own land. Even though there are all these laws about where Japanese people could and could not own land, they're still saving up and buying their own farms. And they were so good at it that the white landowners became very threatened. Like if you look at the real estate values of Japanese American owned farms versus their Anglo neighbors, even though Japanese folks are having to farm on way worse land, cause that's what's left <laughs> by the time they're owning farms, their revenues were like 10 times more per square foot of farmed land. 10 times more. That's fascinating. Yeah. Just based on skill. And there were certain crops that were almost exclusively grown by Japanese Americans, like strawberries, celery, a lot of green beans. And white landowners were really threatened by this. They're like, well, we can't compete. And so something had to be done. So the, like within a couple of hours after the bombing at Pearl Harbor, the uh, a California Vegetable Growers Association is sending a delegate to Washington D.C. talking about how we need to lock all the Japanese up. It was a land grab, one hundred percent. And so, <laughs> when people say things like, you know, um, you know, it's, farm labor has really been seen as a thing that other people are supposed to do, and white people are supposed to own farms. And there's really been one time in U.S. history that white people actually, in a big group, had to do farm labor. And that was the Okies, you know, with the Dust Bowl crisis. Mm-hmm. And it was treated like this apocalyptic national emergency. You know, it, not just the Dust Bowl, but the fact that Okies were having to be refugees and having to pick fruit. Oh, God! You know? <laughs> and it was totally fine when it was other people, right? No one cared. And within a couple decades, the Okies and other people are stealing Japanese farms and then everything's fine. Everything's fixed. And there's just this huge divide between white people are supposed to own land and you work hard, but you only work hard on your own land. It's worth it because it's yours. There's ownership. There's ownership of the means of production. And that's for this class of people. And working on someone else's farm is for this other class of people. Which is so, so similar to what's happening with, you know, the working class folks that are rendered invisible in, you know, tech economies right now. All right, we're going to take a quick break. That's part one of a two-parter with Sadia Muzaffar at Tech Girls Canada. I'm learning so much about stuff that's happening in tech, and there's so much cultural overlap here, which is so interesting. Stay tuned for part two, and thanks for listening to Farm to Tabor. Farm to Tabor.